Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast, being brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, located in historic downtown Pahuska, Oklahoma. It's old Cody here, and as always, I got my co-host with me, Mr. Rodeo Historian himself. He's a historian on just about everything, really. Jimbo Snively. Hey, Jimbo, who do we have today? Hey, Cody boy, it's another great day in Osage, man. Cody, we got a true music icon today. We got the great Rodney Lay with us. And uh, Rodney's been a, a band leader, a musician, a vocalist, a songwriter over a 60-year career. Just an unbelievable career. I mean, he's, he's played and toured with Hank Thompson, Wanda Jackson, Jerry Lee Lewis. That'll be a story or two there. And, uh, <laughs> of course, Freddie Fender, uh, Roy Clark. He's associated a lot with Roy Clark because he was his band leader for years. They traveled all over the world, Russia. Uh, appeared on the, night sh- the Tonight Show like... Uh, seven times, and that's back when the Tonight Show was, was something to be on, you know, not like it is now. And uh, anyway, and, and you know, Cody, we've had uh, uh, world champions ropers and cowgirls and cowboys on here, but we've never had a Hall of Famer in the music business, I don't think. And uh, Rodney's a member of the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame, and his uh, one of his early bands, uh, Rodney Lay and the Blazers, are in the Kansas Music Hall of Fame. So uh, we're really tickled to have him. We can't wait to get into some of his old stories and stuff. And Rodney, welcome to the Cowboys of the Osage podcast. Uh, thank you all very much, both of you, for inviting me down here. And uh, what a nice place this is. You know, I just stepped in door. I didn't realize you had all this great art and pictures, saddles and boots and everything. It's really, really a nice museum. Cody and his wife have done a wonderful that's, job that's, of rest- my uh, goodness. You know, uh, keeping this whole history alive and honoring the old, you know, the, the people that aren't, aren't on the Cowboy Channel every night, but they paved the way for mm-hmm. some of those people, you know, mm-hmm. and they deserve to be recognized. And, and Cody and Lawrence done a wonderful job doing that. You know, when I was young, I played a lot of rodeos. Uh, Jim Shoulders would hire me to, you know, he, he was a producer after he cowboyed, and uh, I'd play a lot of rodeos for him. And then I got into rodeo announcing, too. I did that a couple of years. And, uh very interesting because you're right over the buck and shoots. You get to hear you get to hear a lot of them. You know, some of them kids, good grief, they didn't know what they was doing, you know, and they'd get down there on a bull. And I know one time I'd hear them all talking, and they said, "Well, man, every time you get out there, so you just make a couple jumps, you get bucked off. Why don't you take a finger tuck?" And he said, "Watch a finger tuck." And they said, "Well, we'll show you." And they pulled the end of his glove off a little bit and wrapped that rope around him and everything and he was all rosined up he was in there tight and he said okay let me have him that bull bucked him off the first jump but he didn't come loose <laughs> and he went around that arena and that bull would turn around and hit him with his horns and kick him and finally he came loose and he laid there and he got up and he walked back across the chute and he got down there by the arena and he walked, got over the chutes and he said I don't think I'll ever take another finger <laughs> Just as calm. You know some of the best rodeo advice I ever got, Jimbo? Once they get too big to rope, you eat them. That's you right. don't you ride them. I've tried to live by that, too. Yes, sir. Well, I yes, bought, you know, bought a set of roping calves they were done with, heifers, and just made them cows. You oh, know? yeah, they make good yeah, cows. sure, I've done that, you know. Yeah, sure. Well, Mr. I, I was I'm going to tell you, I was raised, you know, in the country. Uh, my dad was... A bronc buster. I mean, he could ride the toughest horses, and 
and my granddad, a horseman, and, and my great-grandfather, his name was uh, John Lay, and he was next-door neighbors in Missouri to the James gang, Frank and Jesse James, and he sold them horses. And I didn't ever see him, but I'd hear the old ones talk. He'd always talk about they wanted a thoroughbred type horse. They didn't want a little short quarter horse because they wanted something that covered the land and could run several miles to get away from the posse. Huh. And uh, he was an interesting man. He uh, moved to Oklahoma around the turn of the century. He had sold horses to the James gang, and he lived long enough that he sold Will Rogers his last horse, a horse called Billy Sunday. And he was in uh, Will Rogers' uh, funeral over at Claremore and had the Will's boots upside down in the stirrups. And I thought, what a story he has, you know, from... Mm -hmm. The yeah, Jesse James. Jesse James all the way to Will Rogers, you know. That's amazing. And he was a, he was a, a, a bootlegger, and a, he raised the horses, and he made whiskey, and real good whiskey. Uh, Will was one of his good customers, and Wiley Post. They would drive up in the, some old car that had a rumble seat, and they'd open it up and put in two 10-gallon jugs for parties because it was, you know, a time when you couldn't get whiskey. You right, know? sure. And uh, Bob Wills was a good friend of theirs. He would come up and buy whiskey a lot. Right. And uh, Bob would uh, sometimes stay up there. My whole family played music. They'd be, if you went to a picnic up there, there might be 15 or 16 people, men and women playing music. That's what they did, you know. And I remember talking to my granddad about those days, and he said uh, that they would ride, oh, as much as like 28 miles to a dance, a horseback just carry our guitars and fiddles on the saddles, you know. And hmm. he said we would play all night or play the dance and get done about midnight. And they usually were in a barn. Mm -hmm. And he said we'd go out there and ride them horses home. And he said we'd get home and Dad would be saying, let's go to the fields, boys. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what did you make? He said, sometimes a dollar, because that's big money back then, a dollar, you know. Wow. But uh, it, he was an interesting guy. All all my family was really interesting to talk to because they had a lot of stories like me there. <laughs> You know, and half of it's bull. We know that. So right, right. Let's clarify that early. So you got started in the music business early. You're interested. In yeah, music. oh yeah. I went on the stage uh, when I was nine. Yeah, that's early in the forties. And you know, I, I was raised. Uh, my family knew through. They knew a lot of outlaws. They just knew outlaws. Right. And my grandmother used to say, "Well, they're not bad because they were living in Craig County," and they said. Uh, They'll come in and, and you give them something to eat and, and they usually leave you some money, you know, and they didn't uh -huh. have money. So they these guys be carrying lots of money. And uh, I heard the same story with uh, uh, Kathleen Mullendore. You probably remember uh -huh. them. <laughs> you would. And she got talking about her folks being out on the prairie. They just got married. His name was uh, Bowen, Buck Bowen, I believe their name. And I forget what his, her mother's name was, but... Uh, this guy come riding in there. He said, can I come into your camp? They're out on the prairie. And they said, well, yeah. And they was just kids. They was like 16, 17 years old and married. And uh, he said, uh, I just need a place to kind of stay by a warm fire tonight. And so she was fixing supper. And she was cooking uh, skillet biscuits. And he took one bite of them. They're just hard as a rock. <laughs> and he said, ma'am, would you mind letting me show you how to make skillet biscuits? And so... He taught her how to make those biscuits, and they were nice and fluffy mm -hmm. and everything. And she said till the day she died, she'd made those same skillet biscuits from what she'd learned. And I said, 
well, uh, who was the guy? Did you ever know? I said, well, he left $700 under a rock. When we got up the next morning, he was gone. And he'd signed the note, and it was, his name was Al Jennings, the out, old outlaw. Yep. And they took that 700 and bought their, their ranch. And then over on the other side, Mr. Mullendore, the old man from the 1800s, was in the, the land rush. And he was on a thoroughbred horse, she told me. And he went in, and he got a piece of land. And then they eventually merged those and started getting bigger and bigger and became the Mullendore Ranch, which was a good-sized ranch, but it can't touch the Drummond Ranch, which is 433 acres. I'd like to go out on that and just ride a horse across there. Just, right. gee, right. Man, that's right. got to be. And there's got you know, when you when you look at a big place and it's all level and flat and you think, well, that's all it is is prairie. No, there's some gullies down in there oh, you yeah. won't believe. You know, you get down off in there and say, well, man, this is wild, you yeah. know. Sure. I don't know how I got sidetracked like that. All right, we do that a lot. Here, yeah, you know, no I'm, problem. Well, you know, I'm 82 now. I've lived my whole life out here, so uh, You're right. And I got to I got to travel the world, but there's no place like Oklahoma. Right. And they're always talking about building a wall down there and across Mexico. I'd just like to see them build a wall around Texas and Oklahoma. Let the, let the, let the world just figure it out. Right. Wouldn't <laughs> well, be a bad idea. It wouldn't be a bad idea at all. No, I like Texas no. real well. I got a lot of friends down there. You know? Right, sure, sure. And, uh, well, where was the home place? You said they came here to Indian Territory. Where where, where, where they settle Cent- at? Centralia, and it isn't even in there anymore, and it's over in Craig County. Okay. And uh, they thought that the railroad was coming through there, and boy, everybody got in there, and they had three banks, and... I mean, just a real bustling little town. Then the railroad railroad went through uh, Vanita. Yeah, shot I've heard out, of it. Shot them out of the deal. I don't know why. And, uh, that's an interesting area over there. There's been a lot of uh, uh, wild guys come out of mm-hmm. that area too. I sure. remember my granddad was playing a dance over there on I think Salt Creek or one of those areas over there, Little Creek or something. Bob Wills wrote about a lot of those Little Creeks up. That was right. all from that area. <clears throat> and uh, this was back. Well, he was born in the 1800s. It was, it was in the 19, early 1900s. But uh, there was an outlaw around here named Al Spencer, another outlaw, another Al, I mean. Uh-huh. And uh, he was there with his gang. There was, there was four in the gang and him, and they all had on pistols, and they were playing a house dance, a kitchen sweat. Have you ever heard the term kitchen no, sweat? I don't think I've heard that. Well, that's whenever they take, uh, they take everything out of the kitchen, the tables, and they put them out in the back porch or whatever, and then everything out of the living room. So they got two, that way you can have two squares. And the, the band would just get in the doorway between them two. And the band would consist of maybe just a two or three piece band. And then, and then a caller that would call the squares. Well, they're doing one of those. And here comes Al Spencer and his gang. And my grandmother, when she was young, she was just a, I saw some pictures of her. She's a movie star. Golly, she's a pretty little old gal now. And she was about 17. And Al Spencer started hitting on her. Well, my grandpa had a heck of a temper, and he drank a little bit. So we, uh, anyway, he said they got through the dance all right, and he said we went out and, and got in the wagon. They had, he had a wagon, and Al Spencer came out with his he, he said, why don't you just stay here, hon? You don't have to go with him. And he said, uh, I turned around to him, and I said, you know, you really don't scare me that much. He said, this is my wife you're talking to. And he said, he whipped out his pistol and hit me across the nose and broke my nose. I said, well, did you hit him back? He said, no, I hit them horses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he said, live to, live to breathe another day. Right. And, and, but Al Spencer, 
eventually they trapped him, but the the Caney police and the Bartlesville police trapped him right south of Caney in Oklahoma. And uh, it was south of Caney and a little bit back to the west. He was crossing a bridge, and they opened fire on him. Just They didn't talk to him. They just mm. gunned him down. Back then, that's how they did yeah. all those things. Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde got and it was, the same it was treatment. Not, it was nighttime, and they were waiting for him to come across yeah. that bridge. Yeah, yeah. And killed him, you know. Yeah. And he's buried... Right there, close to Delaware, Oklahoma. He's, Is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've been to his grave there. Yeah, I've heard of him. You know, back that's, then. An, that's an interesting thing to do too. Is, is look at the graves in Oklahoma. Oh yeah, I can spend all day in a oh, cemetery. Yeah, I went down to see Belle Star. <laughs> had to walk back through the brush mm-hmm. to see her grave. You know, down there by the lake, down by Porham. You know, mm-hmm. I even went over and saw Pretty Boy Floyd's yeah. grave there in Salisaw. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting stuff. You know, it was a different time back then. You know, when those outlaws died, they'd draw the daggums crowd for the funeral you ever seen. Oh, yeah. You know, for whatever reason. You know, there was just a, something about them. Bonnie and Clyde, the well, same way. All the most famous outlaws you ever heard of, they ran this Indian territory all the oh. way through here. I guess because uh, did you ever be a federal lawman out of Fort Smith to, to back, step foot on here? Back in the 40s, I was at my grandpa's place, and... Uh, the kids were all playing, and this car pulled in. looked like a 36 Ford sedan. And this big, tall, lanky, got out, lanky guy got out, and he had gray hair, and he had a gray handlebar mustache. And he was wearing a shirt with the top buttoned up like that. It's a, it a black shirt, and it was buttoned up. And he had on khaki pants, and he had his pants stuffed in his boots. And my grandpa said, now this here's your uncle somebody. I, I don't remember his name. And... Uh, so we sat around and talked a little while, and uh, he said, you still got your pistol? And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I always carry it in the trunk. He said, boys, you ought to see this man shoot a gun. And so we're just kids. You know, we're eight or nine years old. And we said, oh, yeah, let's see that. Because, you know, out there, you, 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 know, you play cowboys and Indians till you drop, and then what do you do, mm-hmm. you know? So he said, would you, would you shoot your gun for these boys? And he said, oh, man, I'm, I'm a little older now. He looked like he's about 65, maybe. He said, I'm not as sharp as I used to be. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll do it. So he said, you boys get me a can, a coffee can. He said, now, don't get me one of them little bitty ones. He said, get me a big old gallon coffee can. If you can find one. Well, Grandma had one. So she gave me the can. And he, I come outside, and he's got his pistol on, and he's strapping it all down and everything. <laughs> and so he said, now, I said, you want me to throw it up in the air? And he said, oh, no, I don't see that good. He said, take it out there 50 or 60 feet and just set it out there in the yard. Well, he's out in the country. There wasn't nobody around. He said, now, you kids back up. So we backed up out of the way. And he said, y'all ready? And we said, yeah. And he went, just like that. Hit that can every time. It's just jumping in the air. And it almost sounded like two shots. He emptied that gun. And uh, I went and picked that thing up, and it was just shot all to pieces. So... I don't know why I didn't keep that can. You know, right, something right. things he throwed it away. You know, mm, that's true. something you ought to keep around, but right. who knew? So he stayed a little while, and he left, and my granddad was sitting there in a chair. And I said, Grandpa, how did he learn to shoot like that? He said, oh, he used to be involved with the law out west. He didn't say which side. <laughs> yeah, right. And this was in the 40s, and this guy was 65, so he was born around 1880 or something like that. So around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. he was probably going at it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sounds like it ought to be the end of the Wild West, but who was the guys from up there in Wyoming was going 
1915. Butch Casting, the yeah. Sundance Kid, that's 1915. Yeah. Yeah. Then you get looking at your own age, you say, man, I was, I was born pretty close to all that. <laughs> you know, uh, Emmett Dalton, I think, died in 1937. Yeah. And uh, Wyatt Earp died in 1929. Well, I was born yeah. in 40. I was 11 years after Wyatt Earp died. Yeah. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> Geronimo died in, in 1909. Yeah. He got bucked off a horse and got pneumonia and died. I thought, uh, you and I are really close to that generation. Yeah. And I wish I'd have talked to more people back then, but I, yeah. you know, was busy doing idiot things, you know. Yeah. And uh, in fact, that's how I got in show business. I I lived on a ranch till I was twenty, and a ranch life isn't anything like people on the outside think it is. They think that you're riding off in the sunset and flipping your hat in the air, mm-hmm. and it, it's building fence and pulling calves mm-hmm. and right. uh, and bucking bales of hay yeah. in the hot hot hayloft that. You go, you come outside, and you almost freeze to death in July. Yeah, know? they didn't have them big round bales either. Oh, you no. know, back then, it's bucking them bales, yeah. you know. And uh, that's another thing about it. Our horses always stayed slick and fat. And you know what they got to eat is whatever we put in the ground that year. Yeah. They might be eating Milo one year, mm-hmm. corn the next, then maybe oats, just whatever they got. And they stayed slick and fat, and they wouldn't get hurt. Now these horses we got today. If you put them in a room full of mattresses, they'd get cut up. Yeah. And I don't know how, but yeah. they, they can do it easy. <laughs> the more expensive ones get in the best wrecks, too. Oh, always that. You For know. sure. Now, that's that old horse trader story. You know, they had a... <laughs> you remember that old horse trader? I want to hear it. Uh, they had this roping horse that was just the best in the, that part of the country, wherever they were at. And uh, they said... It, they called him Old Thunder. So this old boy had been trying to buy Old Thunder for a long time. And uh, so he got him bought. And, boy, he's just as proud as all get out. And he had had him just three or four days and went out in the pen. And there he laid dead. He thought, what am I going to do? I've lost all my money I had in him, you know. <clears throat> so he just got in the truck and he drove to town. And he went to the feed store. That's where everybody was hanging out. <clears throat> he said, boys, I don't know if you heard or not, but I bought old Thunder, the roping horse. They said, you you got Thunder? He said, yeah, I do. But he said, i tell you what, I'm running a little short of cash, and I'm going to raffle him off. $100 a, a ticket, and we'll draw for the horse. So he ended up, you know, selling another $2,000, $3,000 for the money back, back then, you know. <clears throat> and uh, so he drew the the ticket out and the old boy, he went over there and his horse was mad. He, he was mad. The horse was laying there dead. And so uh, he went back to town and he was talking to some of his friends and he said, yeah, that's what I did. He said, auction him off hundred dollars a ticket. And he said, you know, really he said the only guy that got mad was the guy that won. I gave him his money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've heard that. Old, it's, a, it's an old story, but it's good. Isn't it? It's good. <laughs> Holy moly. This is some of the best stories I've yeah. ever heard, Jimbo. That sounds like a scheme you might come up with. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have heard that old horse trader story he was just telling us. <clears throat> Do you know what I did? I was on that ranch uh, so tired of working. And and my dad, he, he, he loved the ranch. He really did. And uh, I said, uh, Dad, I'm going to go to Hollywood. And he looked at me and he said, Why? 
I said, well, I've been strumming on this old guitar a while. I'm going to go out there and see if I can't hit a lick. He said, oh, you think so, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, well, get going. So I went out to Hollywood, drove out there, didn't know a soul, trying to get in places. Well, anyway, I got a few jobs around, and I'm singing in some places. and and uh, But I, I wasn't making no money, and I got hungry. So I finally came back home after a few months. He said, well, did you learn your lesson? I said, yeah, for a while I did. But I said, I got to get off this ranch. I don't want to work all my life and be all busted down. All, my, the, all the guys I knew was all bent over and broke down. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, they were happy. Right. But I thought I could be happy playing that guitar. So hmm. one day I told Dad, I said, Dad, I'm going to New York City. He said, well, you've lost your mind. And yes, <laughs> I probably have. So I went to New York City, and I bummed around, and, you get it. You get out in New York City, and all those nightclubs that'll hire you—they're all mafia. They're owned by the mafia. Well, you'd be up on a stage singing, and a piece of ice would hit you, pop in the forehead, and they say, "Turn her down." You know, it's just—it was that bad, isn't it? You know, and they—they they would threaten to kill you. Like if you wanted to quit, oh mm-hmm. no, you, they'll kill you. One of them told me, he said, I'll break every bone in your body. You're not going anywhere. And I said, well, I need to get back to Oklahoma. And he said, if you go back to Oklahoma, you won't be able to grab a guitar. You might wrap it around a couple of plow handles. That's what he told me, plow handles. We don't use them anymore. (laughs) 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 So anyway, I had a little band in this place, and we'd worked up our little deal, and, and we couldn't get out of there. So I had a date. This is what was really, I had a date to come home and sing at uh, Boots Adams' daughter's 18th birthday. Now, you remember who Boots Adams sure, is? Sure, sure. President of Phillips. Phillips. So anyway, I had to call her because I couldn't get away from these guys. And I called and she answered the phone. I had her number because we'd getting ready to go play there. And I said, I'm not going to be able to get away from New York. I can't get home. What's wrong? I said, well, I just I can't go into it, but I can't get home. She started bawling and hung up the phone. I thought, God. Well, her mother called me right back. Because I was staying there. I had a little room I was staying in. had a phone, you know. So her mother said, uh, what are you doing, man? He, she said, we've got all the invitations sent out. We've rented the country club. We got ever all everything ready for this. And I said, well, ma'am, I can't go into detail, but I can't come home. Well, the next day, Boots Adams called me on the phone. He said, Rodney, you've hurt my daughter. Oh, God. <laughs> and he said, if you don't come home, I'll see to it you never play in Oklahoma again. And I thought, okay. Never play in Oklahoma again or get my hands busted and broken. And, you know, I'm never going to play in Oklahoma again. I said, I'm sorry, sir. I can't make it. I can't make it. So then we thought, well, how are we going to get out of here? So we started out. Every night, one of the guys would take home one piece of his equipment and come back with something rented, like a little guitar amp, come back with a rented one. And the whole stage after a while was all rented stuff. We always took our guitars home. We didn't have to do that, but the amplifiers and the drum. The drummer had to take on one snare drum or in another until the whole stage was rented. We just didn't come. We didn't go down there. New York City. Yeah. <laughs> Came back home. <laughs> well, 
they traced me down. That mafia bunch traced me down, and they said, if you ever come to New York City again, we'll kill you. I went, God, what an experience. <laughs> and uh, I, I got a chance. I, I worked for Gary Adams, and I knew Kenneth Adams, a couple of these. That's a couple of mm-hmm. boys. And I told them the story. I said, I said, I, I just got to, I can't tell your dad because he's gone. But I said, that's the reason I didn't, I couldn't come home. They mm-hmm. wouldn't let me. And they acted like, well, I'm glad you told me, you know. Gee, <laughs> like, what a mess. They were a big, Adams was a big ranch here in Oklahoma. I don't know, probably before you were here, but a lot of it's Oklahoma land and cattle, the Mormons now, you know, but it, it was a big outfit. They were big time. Yeah. And that Gary, one of them owned that football team, didn't they? Back at Tennessee Oilers or something? I think so. I think one of the boys, I I believe. I know when Boots died, I heard that they, the kids got a lot of money. Right. You know, they got millions and millions. Right. But Bud was the one that owned the football team. You're right. Bud Adams. That's right. And uh, Gary bought the racetrack over at uh, Claremore. Okay. And... uh, so I had raced horses. I just, mm-hmm. Of course, I tried everything you know, back in living. <laughs> and uh, so you kind of learn, you know, that you may have the best horse and the best jockey. That don't mean you're going to win. No. <laughs> it don't work that way. Right. But anyway, I just got where I knew the politics. So uh, Gary, we'd, the opening day down there, we'd advertise the fire out of it. We'd went, we went around 100 miles to every TV station, radio station, newspaper. We sent people out talking to them about the racetrack. Well, the first day, boy, it's packed. And so I'm standing down there by the, the uh, tote board out there on the rail and looking at the numbers. You look at the handle, what's been bet, you know. And so here comes Gary. He said, what do you think, man? Look at all this. I said, look at that tote board. He said, Okay. I said, how much of that tote board do you get to keep? He said, I said, I'll tell you. They, we draw 13% out of that. 1% goes to the Horseman's Association. 6% goes to the state. And you keep six. You're getting 6% of that $3,000 that's bet there. I said, how much money did you put in the purse? He said, 10000 <laughs> I said, hey, you got about 10 races a day of this. He said, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up selling it. I think he sold it to the Cherokees, you know, which they could do better with it because they had they had gambling. They had mm-hmm. gambling, you know. So, right. which I'm a Cherokee too. So, right. watch what you say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, about everybody is yeah, down here. Everybody's right. got a little Indian in yeah, it somewhere. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm married an Osage girl. There you go. There you go. My wife's Cherokee. My mother and dad both were Cherokee. They were both uh, one-eighth. Yeah. So that made me an eighth, too. Well, Rodney Lay and the Blazers, I want to know what color those Blazers were. All I've seen is black and white pictures. Okay. Uh, That was in about 1960. And we got to thinking we've got to be different. Everybody can get up there and play music. So Mm -hmm. we bought – we bought outfits. We had them in canary yellow. We had powder blue. We had silver. We had gold. We had red. We had yellow. And we would change clothes each set. And we we learned never visit with the crowd. Keep that little mystique going. You know, just that, it doesn't mean you didn't like them. You just, yeah. you just go back to the dressing room and go change our clothes, and it's time to do another deal. And pretty soon, our dancers were just packed. And we, we were rehearsing 
all the time, learn a new song. Keep learning the newest songs out, you know. And the, it just, we were, they were just packed. And uh, we got to going to, after we got going around here, then we went to Oklahoma City and we played the, all of the homecomings for OU and Oklahoma State and Kansas and Kansas State. And we just really got really popular in the area. What style of music was that, Rodney? Rock and roll. Rock and it, it roll. Was, That's what I was, was thinking. Chuck Berry, uh, Elvis, uh, Fats Domino, just a little bit. We had two black guys and three white guys in the band. And uh, so we, we could do a, a little bit of everything. You know, they didn't. They even did later on some Motown stuff and all that. So, But anyway, it worked. And uh, we went... Uh, we were we I we cut a record and we didn't know anything about making a record and I had to call a guy and he said well you have to go up the closest one is Kansas City go up there and they'll make a tape and then they'll take that tape and print them up on vinyl at that time forty five so that's what we did and I wrote a song and anyway I took it around to all the radio stations and then I took it around back then they had record shops so I'd leave them on consignment I said no, I'm not going to charge you if you sell any of them you know. And I did that. Just really campaigned hard, getting that going. But it worked. And uh, we were in uh, a, a guy drove through Oklahoma, and he was the manager for a guy named Johnny Tillotson, and he was kind of popular way back in the '60s. And uh, you know, I want to turn that phone off. This thing could just start talking to us here, couldn't it? <laughs> anyway, so it's in the 1960s. So he was driving through Oklahoma City and he heard my record on KOMA. So he went to the music store and bought it. And he was going to have Johnny Tillotson cut that song. And uh, he took it back to Los Angeles. And his office was right next door to a record company called Dory Records. And they had some surfing bands like Jan and Dean and some of those, that kind of stuff. And that may not mean anything to anybody now, but they were popular in their day. And uh, I'm at the music store up in Coffeeville, And the phone rings. The guy answered and he said, there's a guy from Hollywood, right? He wants to talk to you. Well, Mother had told him that I was at the music store. So I get on this, this guy. He said, uh, I, man, I own this company called Dory Records. And uh, he said, I really like your song. And I said, why, why don't we put it out here in Oakland, Kansas? And I said, how did you hear my song? He said, well, I'm next door to Johnny Tillotson's manager, and he brought it over for me to listen to. And he said, I noticed you, you printed your phone number on the record like a hillbilly. That's what I did. I didn't know any different. So he said, I called your mother, and she said you were here. And he said, I want you guys to come out to Hollywood. I'm going to record you. So we go out there. Now, this is after I'd already made my first trip and starved to death, but we go out there this time, a little different deal. And we cut our record, and they put it out nationwide. And pretty soon it's number one in, oh, half a dozen towns, like Phoenix and uh of Philadelphia. They played it on American Bandstand. That was a show, and it got a real good rating. Well, the next thing I know, we're touring with Jerry Lee Lewis and, uh, oh, a bunch of those rock and rollers. You know, we did, oh, um, what's the guy's name? The Oh, man, I can't think of their name. And they did Rock Around the Clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, that, that mm -hmm. band. But several of them, you know. And... Uh, but after a while, you know, we just, that was as good as we could do. But around here, it really made it, our dances great. We went down to Tulsa, and we were playing uh, the Continental Arena. We were drawing like 3,500 kids there. And I remember back then in the 60s, I was clearing myself about 1,500 a week. 
which is like 15000 a week now. You know, we weren't great, but I mean, it's, mm-hmm. that's not bad money, you know. Right. And I could buy a new Cadillac about every three or four months because they were like 3800 you know. And, and I, I know I bought a, a new pink Thunderbird convertible back then, and it was like 2500 or something. But that's not, I could pay for it in a week or two. Mm-hmm. But uh, we worked for a station down there called KAKC. Yep, awesome. I remember it. And uh, so one day they called me and they said, uh, after we'd been around for a year or so, he said, we're going to do a, a fan appreciation, listener appreciation show outdoors, and we'd like for you to play it. I said, okay, sure. I said, how many are you expecting? They said, oh, maybe seven, 800. You know, I said, okay, my, my PA will handle that. We don't need to go get any other sound. So it was where the fairgrounds is now in Tulsa, right to the east of it was Ertley Shopping Center. Well, that was the only place, and that was all open land. Now it's all buildings, but it's sure. all open land, a huge, big area. And so we set up in that big vacant lot there, and uh, people started coming in, and we're getting ready to play, and I looked over, and I said, boy, I don't know if this sound system going to handle it, because I can see we had over 1,000 there, you know. They kept coming in. Uh, pretty soon, as far as you could see down through there, people uh, found out later that kids on uh, 15th, 21st, and 31st stopped their cars because they couldn't find a parking on those streets and left their cars uh, two miles in either direction. And there was 110,000 people showed up. My little PA system, you know, they couldn't hear me, but they didn't care. They're just, you know, they didn't care what was going on. And uh, to this day, it is the, the record. Uh, Roy was telling me one time, he said, well, I beat Bob Will's record. I said, well, how many did you have? And he said, well, Bob had 30,000 here in Tulsa for a deal. And he said, I've had 40,000. I said, I had 110,000. <laughs> he said, what? Of course, he didn't live here. Then. He lived right. up here in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, I got to tell you something about Roy Clark. He said, what's wrong with you people out here? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you, you Okies, what's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you people will laugh if somebody gets bucked off a horse. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> he said... Somebody falls on the ice and just splatters, you laugh. I said, yeah, we do that. I said, I don't know why. He said, well, they don't do that in Virginia where I'm from. I said, I guess it's because the pioneers had to have something to laugh over, so they right. just laughed when people got bucked off a horse. But yeah. they did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And they still do. Still do. They still do. <laughs> Our sense of go, humor. You know? Sometimes you wait to see if they got hurt or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not hurt. Yeah. It's just funnier than Oh, yeah, if you're okay, you're getting it, boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> But that's just the way it is, you know. Right. He said, "You're the you guys got the strange sense of humor." I yeah, said, yeah, I guess so. I bet it was a hoot traveling with Jer- Jerry Lee Lewis, wasn't it? Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis was uh, a genius, but he didn't have any education. He had like a sixth grade education. He's smart as a whip, but it didn't do him no. It messed him up because he didn't have a formal education, you know. And uh, the worst thing you could ever say to Jerry was. <laughs> Please don't tear the pen up. We're renting it. He'd try to burn it down. He'd stomp all over. You did never do that. And I'd tell him, people, I said, the buyers would get up there and say, now, Jerry, don't. I said, don't tell him that. Just go on. So do you show? And he's likely to leave it alone. He may pound the keys with his feet. Right. But they'll, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I've seen him just tear a piano up. Get up in it and just one place, he had to play an upright piano. And he, they didn't tune it. And he sat down, and he went, bling. And he said, 
folks, I can't play this SOB. So you might as well have part of it. He just opened up and started tearing the hammers out, throwing them out. And he just got up and walked off. We hadn't fired a lick. We're standing there like, okay. <laughs> That's the way he was, you know. And he, he, was, he had a very, very short temper. He would fight at the drop of a hat. Really? He just had to just leave him alone, you know. But when I was with him, he just had married that 13-year-old cousin, and he was taking a lot of press over that. Now, in his defense, that was a third cousin. It wasn't his first cousin. Well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's all right. <laughs> oh, mercy. But I'll tell you what, he was a showman. Mercy. And he, he rushed the beat a little bit, too, just while we're talking. We start off a song. He just, well, you better just go with him. You know, that's yeah. all you can do, just go with him. And he'd speed him up, you know. Yeah, he was the entertainer for sure. Oh, yeah. How did he get the reputation killer? I don't know. I don't think he ever killed anybody. Maybe he killed him on the stage. Right, okay. I know once he worked with Chuck Berry, and they were arguing over who was going to open the show. And Chuck said, I want to close. And Jerry said, no, I want to close. And they just really almost got in a fist fight. But Jerry said, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and open. And he got out there, and, and uh, he did his show. And then he squirted lighter fluid all over the piano and set it on fire. And he just, he said, let him follow that. (laughs) (laughs) How did y'all travel from show to show back then when you were with Jerry Lee and those guys in that era? We were in cars. We were in cars and pulling trailers, you know. And then as years went by, I got in the 70s where we went up to the buses, you know. And then when we got with Roy, he had his own jet airplane. And it was nice. (laughs) And... uh, Roy had two buses, a big sound truck thing, souvenir thing, and then his jet airplane going down the road. It was, it was 24 of us that going down the road. And he, uh, I started out as band leader, and then he fired his road manager, and he asked me to do that. He said, would you be, be the road manager? I said, okay. And I'm not smart, but I was raised here, and I I know a rotten horse deal when I'm around. I go, oh, that's not a good deal, you know. You know, we just got we mm-hmm. got that in us. You know yes, what I'm sir. talking right, about? Right. And uh, a lot of people take that us for ignorant. They need it. Oh, don't mm-hmm. don't let the accent get you. Right. You know, because we can trade your pants off. You know. <laughs> right. So anyway, he uh, he had me do that, and then his business manager died. And he made me uh, his business manager. Now, he had his main agent, John, uh, uh, Jim, what's his name? Well, anyway. Halsey? Jim Halsey, yeah. He had his main, but I I was his business manager. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I said, well, I guess I oversee your money and make sure it's okay, which I can do that. And I got in there and started talking to his accountants. I said, now, Roy has made me his business manager. What kind of business does he have? And they said, well, he owns 62 companies. I said, what? what? <laughs> he said, yeah, he's got diamond mines in Africa, and he's got one of the largest gold wholesale dealership. He owns the Tulsa Drillers baseball team. He he owns Big Splash, that mm-hmm. thing out there. <laughs> and it's on and on, meat companies and music publishing companies. And, uh, he made uh, computer parts for Texas Instruments. and You name it, he was in it. Huh. And so... I was like, gee, even Christmas. That I, and I even told him one time, I said, why don't you get uh, a bass player and uh, to, so I can run this? This is a full-time job. No, he didn't want to do this. No, I got to have you out there. 
So, so you were playing for him and oh, and doing oh, this other job. I was playing for him and gathering the money okay. after the show and then taking care of his business and all. I I didn't have a day off. I missed my both my boys' graduations. I missed family funerals. I couldn't go. I, not ever a Christmas home. No Thanksgiving. I did that twenty years, and I went in there one day and I said, "Roy, I'm gonna quit." And uh, he just teared up and said, "I'll talk to you later." And he went out of the room. And I said, "God." Dadgummit, you know, and because he and I are really good friends. Sure. But I was just overloaded. Right. I was just overloaded. So uh, I came, went back to the house, and his wife called me and said, Boy, Roy's tore up. I said, you, uh, Would you come to work for more money? I said, No, it's not the money. They're just paying me really good, you know. And I said, It's not the money. Uh, there's not anything left to me. I, I can't spread me around any thinner. I can't, and I don't want to make a bad decision because we're talking about millions of dollars, you know. You, you got to be sharp for that stuff. So uh, then the band started calling me. They said, Do you really quit? And I said, Yeah, I quit. I said, I'm going to stay for a month. I didn't want to leave him in the lurch. So I said, I'm going to stay for a month and then I'm gone. So I quit and I came home. And the first thing that hit me was the phone wasn't ringing all the time. I went to look around and thought, Pretty soon I'm getting antsy. Yeah. All of a sudden, from just billions, I'll get to nothing. And uh, I thought, well, I got to do something the rest of my life. I was 56, and I said, I'll go out there and grab me some little job for 75 or $100,000 somewhere. Uh, <laughs> what have you been doing? Oh, you play bass? We're not looking for bass players. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, God, <laughs> welcome to the world. You know? <laughs> So, but anyway, I, I'm glad I did because I got to know my family more. I got to see my kids more, and uh, I probably would have been dead by now. I even told my wife that. I said, this is going to kill me, you know, and nothing's worth that. Right. And uh, so anyway, that's what happened. To what me. was it like, like playing on The Tonight Show? Now, was that back when it was in New York? Johnny Carson. No. Seven times, I believe yeah, I, I read. On there about seven, seven, at least seven times, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because when I was a kid, it was in New York. What? And he got yeah. to traveling out there, yeah, well, doing I, a few shows, and Johnny finally Carson. moved out there. Yeah, with Johnny Carson, it was out in Burbank. Yeah. But uh, the show was recorded live. So mm -hmm. once that tape started, they couldn't stop it. Because it had to be, when it got done out there, we shot at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then they had to ship it, lose three hours, mm -hmm. so they could show it in the evening out there, you know, mm -hmm. over the airways. So... It wasn't bad to back up Roy, mm -hmm. but one time I had a, I had signed to a record label here in Nashville, and I had a song out, and it was getting some play, and uh, I said, we're flying out there in the jet, Roy and I was in the jet, and the other guys had already went out the day before, and I said, uh, well, I'd like to do that song on the Tonight Show, and he said, you got it, and I said, no, I'm just kidding, he said, no, you got it, you need to have that on that Tonight Show, so I thought, wow, so I get out there, and uh that day at rehearsal, I forgot the words to the bridge. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what's happening to me here? Here now, I can't do that. <clears throat> and so I'm backstage. <clears throat> and we did a little deal with Roy first. And Roy came out and sat down and started talking to Johnny Carson. We're back behind the curtain. And then Roy says, you know, he is already planned. He said, mm -hmm. well, Johnny said something. Well, you, you got a friend with you that's going to sing. He said, yeah, my band leader has got a new record out. And we're going to let him sing his record. I said, okay. And before that, though, when the show started, I'm backstage, and I 
hear the band saying, da 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 Shoot me. Shoot me now. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> but then it just got worse and worse to the time. And he said, here's Rodney Lay. And they opened that curtain up, and I step out and start singing. And I looked down, my pant legs were shaking. <laughs> and I said, oh, don't fail me now, Hoshi. I got to hang in there. So I get to the spot where the guitar player plays a little few licks, and they turn the camera over to him. And I looked over at Roy, and he's sitting over there with Johnny Carson, grinning from ear to ear. And he puts his hands up, and he whispers, suffer. <laughs> suffer. Boy. But now, you know what? Singing on Hee Haw was a piece of cake because you're among friends. Yep. Singing on the Grand Ole Opry, same thing. You're among friends. But you're not among friends on a network show out of Los Angeles. That's a different world, you know. I kept thinking, the president could be watching. You know, uh, John Wayne could be watching. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Who was all on them TV shows with you? Do you remember any of the oh, stars? Oh, my. I, I met so many people on those shows. Um, just sat around and visited with them. Oh, Bob Hope, Danny Thomas, Dean Martin, uh, Phyllis Diller, uh, just on and on like that. It was just a bunch of I know one time I was backstage talking to Danny DeVito, the little guy on yeah. Taxi, mm -hmm. and uh, then up walked Andy Kaufman, who was on Taxi oh, wow. yeah. also, mm -hmm. and he had his neck in a, a rubber brace of some kind. He'd been in a wrestling match with a guy, and it hurt his neck. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I said, Andy, why did you get in the ring with him? He said, well, I thought he knew I was kidding. I said, did you clarify that before you started? He said, well, no, I just assumed. I said, now look what you got. You don't assume that with a wrestler. Well, he used to wrestle women on there. You know, he'd challenge a woman oh, I know. to wrestling, you know. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, I had a drummer one time that was a – now, if you need to stop. No, 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 no. no. We're going. I had a drummer one time. He's with me a long time. And he wasn't a very big guy. He's like five foot four. But he's always trying to get me to fight somebody. <laughs> you know, and I used to get in fights once in a while. I, you know, you play them bars, you're going to get in a fight. I don't care. You think you can get away, but you can't. Somebody's going to try you. So this had gone on. Like one time we're traveling through Kentucky. And the boys wanted a cold beer to drink. So I said, well, stop the bus the next place you see. I was riding the bus through Kentucky with guys and i said stop the bus and i'll buy a couple six packs so we go around this corner we're in the smoky mountains and here's a beer joint sitting off of the gravel parking lot <laughs> a bunch of old beat up trucks parked in front of it so we swung that bus down in there and we got out and went inside and as soon as i stepped in that door i thought i'm in the wrong place because everybody turned around and looked at us and they're all in bib overalls ball caps and they don't like us we had our long nashville haircuts and i thought oh <laughs> So I go over to the bar as quick as I get there, and I said, we need two six-packs of Bud to go. He said, well, I've got them in the cooler out here in back. I have to go outside and get them. So my little drummer standing there, he's looking around at everybody, and they're all just, they're just they're glaring at us. And so they bring me the beer, and I pay for it, and he takes a six-pack, and I take a six-pack. And we, before we got to the door, he stopped me. He said, my man here can whip anybody in the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I shot out that door, and he's running behind me laughing. And here comes these guys out there, and the old boy driving the bus, he swung that bus door open for us. We jumped on, slammed <laughs> it shut, and those pool cues were hitting the side of the bus. And we took off, and they didn't follow us. I guess they figured a bus, they're going to have a hard time driving off the road. And I said, Bob, why do you do that to me? Why do you want to get me in trouble? He said, well, it just seemed like the thing to do. 
So he when he this even happened younger, but when he was younger, he in high school he fought golden gloves. He was little, but he fought little guys. And uh, he said, "You ought to watch me box." And I said, "Well, I like to do that." He said, "Well, come down to the Memorial Hall tonight." And he said, "They're going to have a, a boxing match for the what do they call the amateurs, uh, Golden Gloves." Golden Gloves. And uh, so I said, "Okay." He told me what time to be there. So I get down there and I go in the locker room, and here's all these guys getting taped up, you know, getting their hands all ready, and they're warming up and this and that. So I'm sitting there watching everybody. So the coach walks in and he said, "We're short a boxer." Said, uh, "We need somebody to fight this kid from Parsons, Kansas." And my drummer, he said, "Well, Rodney, do that." <laughs> and I said, "Wait, wait a minute." And he said, "Well, you scared?" That's the thing. That, well, then you know how that sets in. You yeah. said, no, I'm not scared. It's just three rounds. You know, he said, "If you don't want to do it, if you're chicken, that's all right." And I said, "No, I'm not chicken. I just don't. I don't. I don't know the game. I don't." And I said, first of all, I don't have the clothing for it." So we got all that. We got trunks. <laughs> we, we got gloves. We got that. Back then they wore headgear for that. Don't gold. worry. Right. No problem. So he said, well, you do it or not? Are you going to back out? I said, no, hell, I'll do it. I thought, <laughs> so they get, they tape my hands up, get me all ready. And I said, coach, could you give me, I said, I, I fought in bars and you grab a chair and hit somebody. But yeah. I said, this is a little different. I said, Fisticuffs, I don't know about. He said, he said, well, you know, and he set me up and he showed me how to protect myself and counterpunch and a few little quick things. And I thought, this ain't enough. <laughs> well, anyway, it came my turn. They said, okay, Rodney, you're on next. So I, I walk out and this place is thundering. Whoa, thousands of people. <laughs> and I'm walking down that aisle and I get up to the ring and there's a black kid sitting across from me. His nostrils are flaring. He, so, he hates me so bad. I'm going, I don't even know this guy, and he's going to try to kill me. So I get in the ring, and I'm still not scared. You know, right. I, I, I've been hit before, you know. So that, but I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to look like a dummy out here. Right. So anyway, why, the ref said his little thing, and he said, you know, touch gloves and come out fighting. We touched gloves, and I stepped out there, and he hit me, and my legs turned to noodles. I was just like, hey, hey, hey. I thought, I'm going down. First punch, and I'm done. Well, I just started fighting him off all I could, you know, just trying to keep him, keep away from him, you know, and all I could until my head started clearing a little bit, and I got through that round, and I went over and sat down, and, whew, and they said, you all right? And they pouring water on me. And I said, yeah, I'm better now. I said, boy, for a while, I thought I was gone. <laughs> So I went up to the next round, and, and I might have hit him once or twice in the whole round, and he hit me everywhere, but the balls <laughs> on my feet. He couldn't get to them. <laughs> so anyway, I got through the th three rounds, and of course I lost. You know, right. they gave it to him. And I go back there to the uh, locker room. My friend had been watching. He watched right. the whole thing. He said, how do you like it? I said, don't even talk to me. <laughs> so the coach comes in, and he said, Ronnie, there were some things you did I kind of liked. He said, would you like to be a Golden Gloves boxer? And I said, hell no. <laughs> no I'm not ever going to do that again in my life. I don't know why they're all not brain dead. Just wishy-washy. <laughs> Golly. But anyway, that I did fight Golden Gloves, if anybody ever asked <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> one time and lost I talked, talked to a guy one time. He said, you know, I boxed a lot. And he said, I, I was in 22 fights and never finished worse than second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, that's sir. a good one. <laughs> yeah. 
Freddie Fender. Yeah. What was he like? One of the nicest men I ever met. Well, he was hot back then too, wasn't he? He was. I tell you what, I, Jim Holmes, he got me that job. Yeah. Uh, the agent. Uh-huh. And uh, I learned his songs, and I thought he just did, you know, wasted days and yeah. wasted nights, and before the next teardrop right. fall. He ain't like that at all. He He's like Stevie Ray Vaughan. You get out there on the road, and he's playing real funky Houston blues. It's just totally different. I thought, you ought to be doing that, man. That's Stevie Ray Vaughan. He just playing that guitar and everything. And uh, the nicest guy ever was around. Oh. He was just a prince of a fellow. He was just very kind-hearted. And uh, his agents he had, they were from Louisiana, his managers, and they were robbing him blind. I know he was, at, when he when I first got with him, he was making 10000 a night. Now, that didn't sound like much, but we're talking about 40 years ago. Sure. 10000 would be like 100000 there or no, whatever. Probably. So... Uh, I know we'd been on the bus with him for a, a year. I worked with him two years. And he said, well, I'm buying my mom a home in Houston. And he said, uh, he was from Corpus Christi originally. But he said, uh, he said, it took me a year to save it up. But he said, I'm buying her house. And we rode along a little while. His father, he said, 10,000 bucks. And I looked around him and I said, what'd you say? And he said, I had to pay $10,000 for the house. And I didn't dare say you're getting wrong because those guys would have probably killed me, you know. Yeah, right. Those agents, I thought, no, I just bless your heart. Yeah, bless your heart, you know. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, he went to prison when he was a young kid. He did two years in prison for having a marijuana cigarette in his shirt pocket. One marijuana cigarette in his shirt pocket. Two years in prison. I thought, golly, you know, he was just born forty years too early, I guess, because nowadays that wouldn't be anything. No. I, I was I felt sorry for him, you know. Mm-hmm. But a well of a nice guy. We 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 went out to the uh, Apache Indian Reservation to play. <laughs> so when we got there, they had this government building out in the desert, and the dust had blown up against the door, and it, they had to shovel the dust away to get the door open. <laughs> and this old uh, guy that lived there, he, he was a he was a white guy. He said, "Now, you guys, I'm going to tell you something. When you get unplanned, get out of here." He said, they'll try to run over you in their trucks. And I said, so we go in, it's just like a <laughs> basketball gym thing. And I thought, how do we get in these places? Didn't have a stage. So we set up underneath one of the goals. And we started playing and nobody came in. They're all outside. And pretty soon on the second song, here they came in single file, boys and girls. Boys on one side, girls on the other. And they just lined up like that. And then they started doing, 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 in like that and back out like that. They danced really strange, you know. Well, after we played a few songs, then those little Indian girls would come around going, <laughs> giggling and looking at us and giggling. And then after that, there'd be a pack of Indian boys come by flexing their arms at us. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Freddie said, this is the first time I've ever felt like a white man. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we did just like he said. We we packed up and got out of there as soon as we could. They'd already paid us, and it was a federal job, so they mm-hmm. paid us in advance, and we got out of there. You know, where was that at? Well, it was in the northern part of Arizona, or it was near Shiprock. I remember Shiprock, all those mesas and stuff. We were around that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. 
But boy, scary. Yeah. Scary. Freddie, he died fairly young, didn't he? Yeah, and I don't know what killed him. Uh, but heaven got an angel because he's yeah. a good guy. That's and I, cool. I'm friends with his son. Yeah. And I've told him how much I thought of his dad. Cause yeah. He said, well, I'm glad to hear that. I said, he's a good man. He was yeah. just a good man. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the uh, Texas Tornadoes, the band he was yeah, he part was of. Yeah. There, yeah. towards I guess the latter part of his life, but mm-hmm. we we played. It's on the loop over there at the Buck and Flamingo. Uh, the Hey Baby K Paso every day, and yeah. and yeah. his last Teardrop Falls song. Uh, yeah. We're real big fans of Freddie Fender, and we're trying to uh, we're showing our girls, you know, nine and twelve or ten and twelve. I don't know exactly how old they are. It's embarrassing, <laughs> but I know they're in that general neighborhood. Two girls, uh, my daughters, but. Uh, we're trying to teach them all the old great yeah. music guys like Freddie Fender. I've got so. a friend that's a music teacher over in uh, Norman, or close to Norman there, and he's teaching those kids. These kids are like first through fourth grade, and he's teaching them songs, and then he's doing a history of the famous people that played music in Oklahoma, and that keeps them interested. And some of them are uh, jazz guys, and they even like that. But he said, I don't want them to forget the old music. Uh, you know, it's hard to tell somebody today that you, you, you're not as big a fan of one of these new artists as yep. you were George Strait or Alan Jackson. I said, I like them better. And they said, well, yeah, but that's old. I said, well, I, you know, sometimes being old doesn't make it worse, you know. Yeah. And, and that's not even old. And that's not even old, <laughs> you know. Uh, they don't know who George Jones no, is. No, no, you know? right. Oh, I love George Jones. Yeah. But that's what... You know, I wrote some. I wrote songs for some guys. You know, and I wrote. Uh, I wrote a song for Hank Thompson first. I, this is a little story that'd be interesting. I'm out there in Hollywood. I got a job. I had jobs everywhere, but I'm writing. Uh, too far away. No, I just, no, we're all good. <laughs> okay, I was writing songs for Pamper Music, and the guy that ran Pamper Music was Joe Allison, and he wrote "He'll Have to Go," mm-hmm. but your sweet lips sure. a little closer. Okay, Jim Reeves. Song. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> so. I'd been writing out there for several months, and he was paying me, and he fired me one day. He said, you're never going to write a hit song. You're too expensive. <laughs> so, man, I was just crushed. So I come back to Oklahoma, and I'm like, I'm a failure. You know, I'm fired. And one day a song hit me to write, and I wrote this song, and I didn't, couldn't get a hold of him, and I thought, who do I even know? I said, well, I'd worked with Hank Thompson. Back then, if you played country music, you worked with Hank Thompson sometime. You know, I worked with the I worked with the Texas Playboys. I worked with Johnny Lee Wills. I worked with Leon McAuliffe. I worked with different ones. I even had an opportunity to sing with Bob. He asked me to get up and sing, and I chickened out. And I was a teenager, and I was at this dance, and the agent introduced me. And he said, why don't you get this, Bob, get this boy up and sing with you. Bob said, yeah, come on up, man. He said, Tommy Duncan's not with me. You come on up. And I said, oh, I don't believe I could. So I didn't. And that agent said, well, you're going to regret that all your life. You got you turned down Bob Wills. Well, I thought many times about getting the T-shirt. Said, I turned down Bob Wills on the front and kicked me hard on the back. <laughs> anyway, I got sidetracked. What were we talking about? See, Hank we, Thompson, writing yeah, songs okay. for him. Hank Thompson. He's so, wrote a lot of songs, I think, Jimbo. Yeah, oh, yeah. So for a lot of people. I wrote this song, and the title was, uh, He's Got Away With Women, and He Just Got Away With Mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Hank called me on the phone after I'd sent it to him. And he said, man, I like that song. He said, I'm going to record it if, if you want me to. I said, I, yeah, I want you to. He said, well, i got to go out to L.A. and record. He's recording for United Artists or somebody. So 
when he got home, he, he said, uh, I had something really strange happen to me. And I said, what's that? He said, well, Joe Allison was producing my session. And when I sang this song to him, he just flipped out. He said, that's a hit record. He said, did you write that? And he said, no, Rodney Lay wrote it. And he said, he just looked real strange because <laughs> he had just fired me. Like yeah, two, all right. <laughs> and it, it went to 16 on Billboard. You yeah, know, I remember. Top 20. Mm-hmm. So I was tickled. I know I bought a new pickup truck with my first check. Yeah. I was like, way to go. <laughs> and I went to work at a radio station there in Coffeeville, a little 10,000-watt station. I was a disc jockey. And you'd get little pieces of mail in the, from record promoters. They'd send you stuff and say, if you will uh, play this record, this is going to be a hit. And they, they, they'd pick their hits and mm-hmm. all. Well, Harlan Howard, who was a great songwriter, mm-hmm. had a, a little sheet like that. And he'd send one up each week. Well, one week he sent it up. He had a little corner of the page. It was just a one-page deal. And it said, the song I wish I'd wrote. And he'd have a different song every week. Well, one week is he's got away with women and he just got away with mine. I thought, I took that piece of paper and I took a week's vacation from the radio station and my wife and I went to Nashville. No appointment, no nothing. I took a bunch of songs I'd wrote and I'd learned from a guy, don't put all your songs on one tape. Back then we put them on reel-to-reel tape and he said, put in several places one or two songs on a tape. So you, you, don't, you feed them a little at a time. Mm-hmm. You don't say, here's a whole bunch of songs. They <laughs> yeah. won't listen to that. Yeah. So I go in there, and I've got my tapes in my coat pocket and shirt pockets and pants pockets. And uh, I said, I'd like to see Harlan Howard. And the gal there said, oh, he's not in. And I said, oh. I said, well, I came a long way. I said, would you tell him that the guy that wrote He's Got Away With Women and Just Got Away With Mine was here to see him about some songs he's wrote? His office door swung open. He said, did you write that? He was in there hiding it. Right. I said, yes, sir. He said, have you wrote more stuff? I said, yes, sir. So he said, well, come on in here. So he said, what else you wrote? And I started the old pulling out one or two. You know, he'd listen to them. He'd, and then he'd go along. He said, this is going to be a great day for you and I. This is going to be a great day. So finally I got to a song that I co-wrote with Wayne Carson, who wrote You Were Always On My Mind. And uh, I'd, I've been writing with him, and uh, he and I wrote uh, a song I didn't get credit for, but it, it was a song called I See the Want To In Your Eyes that Conway Twitty cut because I was with another publisher at that time, and I couldn't get loose, so we did it ghostwriting. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so anyway, we had this song we wrote called Something's Wrong in California <clears throat> because at that time, the California had just gone real hippie in the 60s, and it was just really... But yeah, it's perfectly the, fine now out but there. But the song wasn't about that. It was about the guy's girlfriend out there. Something's wrong in California, because I, I, one of the lines was, I can tell by the letters she don't write. Something's wrong. So he listened to that, and he said, at that time, Waylon Jennings was the big star in the 60s. He was really hot. And he said, I can get Waylon Jennings cut that right there. I said, well, go to it. <clears throat> so I, I left and went on back to the hotel and flew back to, or drove back to Oklahoma. In about a week, the phone rang. And I picked it up, and it was Waylon on the phone. He said, something's wrong in California. <laughs> hey, went, oh, man. And uh, he said, I'm going to cut your song. And I said, God, thank you. 
you know. So years later, I mean, it, it went to 14 in the nation. It's almost top 10. That's good for a dummy like me. But <laughs> Top 20, for sure. Oh, yeah, top 20. So <laughs> I'm doing a show with him somewhere, and uh, I'm in the opening band. I thought I turned that off. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I don't know how to turn it off. Folks, these dang technological can, can you computers. edit this out? Well, yeah, we can do anything. Okay. Well, I don't know how to turn it off. Wait, maybe I got it there. Well, heck, we'll just leave it right in. Okay, yeah. <laughs> leave it in. So anyway, he's on the show. So we're sitting backstage eating a hamburger on a couple of big, tall benches or stools. And he said, uh, right in, I don't sing your song anymore. And I said, why? He said, I hate it. I said, you hate it? He said, you know, when I recorded it, I had the flu real bad. And he said, every time I heard it on the radio, I thought of having the flu. He said, then when I'd sing it, I'd think about having the flu. <laughs> and he said, you did get all your royalty checks, didn't you? I said, yeah. He said, we're okay then, all right? <laughs> so you don't have to sing it. <laughs> I never heard anybody say that. I hate that song. <laughs> to the guy that wrote yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, mercy. <laughs> Well, besides that, what kind of guy was old Waylon? How many other times you run oh, across him? Uh, many, many times. Uh, he call you Haas ever? And he might have. I don't remember okay. at the time. I know one time he called backstage. Uh, his wife called. What was her name? Uh, Jesse. Jesse told Jessie. her. And uh, she said, uh, Rodney, this is Mrs. Waylon Jennings. I said, yeah, Jesse, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, I didn't know if you were. I said, yeah, I've heard your record. <laughs> Mrs. Whaley. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's incredible. But he'd come out to, like, Nevada a lot of times. Him and his wife would come backstage, you know, and we'd visit. And uh, he's a nice guy. And what were you doing in Nevada? Were you at Las Vegas? or? or? Oh, all over. We worked, uh, we worked, well, I started out with Roy on the Strip. We were in gold, the Golden mm -hmm. Nugget and all that. Then we were, I mean, on the Strip, Downtown, downtown, Golden Nugget. Right. Kind of uh -huh. We ended out working Caesar's Palace and <clears throat> the Desert Inn and all those bigger places, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. when he got really, really famous. Did right. you ever run across <coughs> Benny Binion out there? Who? Benny. Oh, well, I used to eat his chili every night. <laughs> that dollar bowl of chili was wonderful, you know. And you'd see him walking around through there. And he was an old gangster, you know. He was, he knew the bad guys, but his chili was good. <laughs> and I, you know, <clears throat> I really enjoyed I enjoyed Vegas. There was a lot of, of funny things happened out there. I know when I worked at the Nugget in the 60s, there was a realtor came in every night, and he'd watch the band. And uh, this is back before I had with Roy Clark. And uh, so he said, uh, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So when I, I was over at the bar, and I walked over and sat on his table, and he said, <clears throat> you do pretty good out here? And I said, well, I do okay, yeah. I think I was making about 1500 a week then because uh, you know, Nevada pays better. And he said, uh, I want to show you a piece of land. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, you do. What are these yeah. deals? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I said, okay. And he said, okay. he said, where are you staying? He said, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 2. I said, okay. So he came and we drove out of town like you're heading to L.A., yes, sir. The strip and on out and got cleaned out of town about half a mile. <laughs> and he said, you can buy this land right here for $300 an acre. And I try and look back up to town, I thought, it'll never get out here. <laughs> and yeah. there's newspapers and beer bottles. Uh. And I said, no, I believe I'll pass. And he said, you're missing it. I said, I probably am, but I'll pass. 
because I, I can just hear my wife say, you spent $3,000 on, you want me to buy 10 acres, $3,000. And I said, no, I'll, I'll just come on home. So fast forward to the 80s, and I'm in, uh, we were working at the uh, Caesars, at Caesars, big, nice, pretty place. And Roy and I are backstage, and the, the Mater D said, "There's a guy out here running. Wants to talk to you." Said he used to, he tried to sell you a piece of land one time. <laughs> I remember that guy. I said, yeah, Kevin, come on back. So he comes back. <clears throat> Good to see you, man. You you know we've gotten a little older, haven't we? I said, yeah, we have. Haven't we? And he said, "You remember that land I was going to show you? You know, I tried to show you to buy for three hundred dollars an acre." And I said, "Yeah, I remember that." He said, "You know where that is now?" And I said, "No." He said, well, "You're standing on it." <laughs> <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Wow. And he said, let me tell you what happened. He said, all those people that bought it for 300 an acre, I turned around and helped them get it sold for 70000 an acre. And he said, a firm bought that and then sold it to Caesars for a million dollars an acre. But if you'd have held on to your 10, you'd have went right along and get back right in. <laughs> I said, good grief. Ooh. So here, what, what have I done? I bought, I've turned down Bob Wills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my other turned down story was I walked in a Ben's, Ben Franklin's up at Coffeeville to buy some Sharpies to sign autographs with. Yeah, it was like an old, uh, it was like a Walmart sort <clears throat> of, yeah, but smaller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the lady that ran it, it wasn't, they're not big places. They're like a Dollar General kind of thing, you know. So this lady that ran it, she said, well, I don't have any money, but that kid over there does. <laughs> And I'm the only one in the store, and this old boy walks over, and he said, uh, I own this store. I own this store and one in Bentonville, Arkansas. He said, my name is Sam Walton. I said, it didn't mean anything to me. I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. so what? Here we go. And he said, I'm needing some partners. He said, if you could spare $1,000, this is in 1960, mm-hmm. which would be like 10000 probably. And I had 2000 on me. I remember that because I lost 1000 of it shooting pools the next night. <laughs> <laughs> he said, if you, if you can become a, my partner for $10,000, he said, I want to get six guys. He said, that'll give me 60000 and that will pay me down 10% on a $600,000 piece of property. Is that right? Sixty? No, 6000 A 60000 piece of property, which back then he built a couple of stores with that. Well, they, they, that's all they were. And he said, then I'm going to grow it into bigger and bigger. And I thought, this man is crazy. <laughs> I said, no, thank you. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> turned down Sam Walton, Bob Wills, and the realtor. <laughs> right. And, but I did learn from that. There's always opportunity in your life. A lot of times you just don't see it and it gets by. But it seems like when I would try something, it wouldn't work. You know? Right, <laughs> you know? right. But there are a lot of deals that do. You know? Oh, yeah. And I, I noticed one thing about rich people. Uh, they're kind of squirrely. They'll take some real risky chances, you know. I don't mean they're insane. They're mm-hmm. just, they just take risky yeah, chances. Right. But some of those things hit, you know, right. and you, they turn around, they're just filthy rich. Yeah. If just one of those things hits, you know, well, the right deal. Later on, I went to, years later, I went to a party, and it was a, a, an outdoor where they had a steer on a spit, a half a steer, mm-hmm. a cowboy thing, and there's a bunch of cowboys there. And, and a bunch of rich people. And I got invited because I had a big mouth and played guitar, you know. <laughs> so I'm there, and I sit down next to this guy. And so we're just shooting the bull. And I said, so what do you do for a living? He said, Southern and Lumber. I said, 
which store? He said, all of them. I said, golly, that's pretty heavy. I knew I was in good company. Right. And he said, you see that guy turning the spit over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, he doesn't work. He said, he's a multimillionaire. And so he came over on his, when he got done turning, somebody else turned to steer a while. And I said, how do you, how do you get rich and don't work? He said, I gave Sam Walton $3,000 in 1969. Nine years later, he said, I've never worked a day since. I said, go away. 